in the real world, there are lots of warning signs for us to be ready. At an intersection, a green light changes to yellow in anticipation for the red light. At a railroad crossing, the lights begin to flash to warn us of the oncoming train. On a football field, there is a two-minute warning bell to signal that the end of the game is soon to come. On a basketball court, there is a shot clock which warns, counting down from 24, warning that there will be a forced turnover to the other team if you don't shoot the ball. And in the Bible, there are countless warnings to us from my Lord Jesus Christ for us to prepare for his soon coming. They are not warnings given by anyone else other than the one who is coming again, Jesus himself. And in fact, it is reiterated throughout the New Testament by the apostles in their letters to the various churches, also warning and reminding us to prepare for his coming. Now, some of us may think these warnings have lost its luster, have lost its effect and emphasis because Jesus hasn't come in more than 2,000 years. It just simply means that these warnings are even more important because we live one day closer to the coming of Christ. Warnings and the timing between when the warning is given and the event happening have no correlation. The warnings are important at the moment in which it is given, not the distance of time between when they're given and when they actually happen. Just like every year as our body ages, various body parts begin to break down. You know this. Various bones start to creak and crack, signaling that the end of mortal life will soon be coming with each birthday. And yet it may be another 70 years until that time comes, but our bodies warn us long ahead that mortality will come to all. In the same way, the warnings of our Lord's coming are here. How do we respond? The warnings are given so that we have ample time to prepare. In fact, these warnings are so important, and they are important as life lessons for us to prepare for His coming, that Jesus teaches it in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, as we exposit verses 1 to 13. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, as we continue our sermon series entitled Masterclass, learning important life lessons from the parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to learn about the important life lesson of preparation. Now, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 25, let me give you the scriptural context for why this parable is given. Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. It is a sermon given on the Mount of Olives. It was a sermon given by Jesus in response to a question by his disciples. And the question was, Lord, when will you come back? When will you come back and establish your kingdom? And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus will go on to describe the events that precede his coming in the Great Tribulation. Then he will talk about the events that surround his second coming. And as he does so, he will go on to describe how people are to live their lives in view of his second coming. 
It is in this context of how people are to live their lives in view of his second coming that Jesus gives the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. And it is to describe the heart condition of those who rightfully anticipate his coming. Look with me at verses 1 to 4 as we begin our study in this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Here there are ten virgins in this story, ten young ladies, who are waiting for the return of the groom. As was the custom in those days, after the marriage, the groom would bring back the bride from the bride's house, and he would lead a grand procession to his own house, where he has prepared an amazing wedding banquet. Today we call that a wedding reception. These virgins were invited to the banquet but they would have to have a lit lamp. In the greater context, Jesus is the groom that is pictured. He is coming back with his bride, the church, in his second coming to establish his millennial kingdom. And in this kingdom, there will be a wonderful feast and banquet, as the book of Isaiah tells us, for those who have been faithful and those who are prepared for his coming. Here are the ten virgins who bring oil lamps with them. Five of them bring extra oil in containers, not knowing when the groom would come back. The other five chooses not to bring extra containers of oil. I want you to notice something here in verses 3 and 4. Right off the bat, how Jesus describes them. Those who were prepared with extra oil were described as wise. Those who did not prepare extra oil were described as foolish. The simple point of Jesus is this. Those who prepare are wise. Those who do not prepare are foolish. Neither group knew when the groom would come. And so one planned for contingency if the groom is delayed and the other did not. Now why do I point this out? At the very beginning. It's because today there are many Christians who believe that planning for life doesn't correspond with living a life of faith. They think that faith and planning are mutually exclusive. And so they rather choose to live in faith. And so they will do things in faith. And so they don't plan when they want to build They simply say, it doesn't matter if we have money or not, we will just simply do it by faith. Even if you tell them, but we don't have the capacity to build this building, they will reply, just have faith. They don't save, they don't plan for the future, because they will trust God by faith. When they launch a project and do something that costs money, that requires advanced planning, they'll simply say, we will just trust in the Holy Spirit to guide us as the situation arises. We live by faith. The sad truth is 
these individuals are not reading the Bible. There are countless parables against this very attitude. More than that, Jesus' very clear words, people who do not plan are foolish. People who plan are wise. You see, my friends, our faith is not a blind faith. It is an active faith that plans for things with the brain that God has given us. In reacting to the circumstances that he has put us in. Our faith, which is our trust in God and not in ourselves, works in conjunction with the wisdom of spiritual and physical preparation and planning in order to do the will of God. Faith and planning are not mutually exclusive. They work hand in hand to display the will of God. For example, if you're on a long trip, a long driving trip, and your fuel gauge is almost the E empty, and you realize that you're coming up to a gas station. Now, as I know that a lot of males do this, you realize that at your destination, there's a gas station that is cheaper than the one that you're driving by. And so you begin to think to yourself, will I make it? I know there's some spare gallons or liters of fuel, even if it hits E. But if you are calculating, let's say, that it is another 100 kilometers to your destination, and you estimate that there's only 50 kilometers of gas left, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. That car will die before you reach your destination. A wise person would fill their gas tank now so that they will reach their destination. A foolish person will say, well, you know what? Maybe Jesus will do a miracle. Maybe he will multiply my gas that I will suddenly get free gas. I've been praying that a lot. I've never gotten free gas from God. That would be foolish. And so you fill up your car with gas to get you to your destination and then have the faith that God will bring you to your destination safely as you trust him to protect you. That's how planning and common sense works hand in hand with faith. Now let's get back to Jesus' parable. Look at verse 5 to 7. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The bridegroom was delayed. And Jesus tells us all the virgins fell asleep. They waited and they waited. But the groom didn't come. Is it the fault of the groom that he is late? Some of you are nodding your heads, yes, because in a wedding, the only person that can be late is the bride. Well, the answer is no. The groom can be late, especially to his own party. It is his prerogative to come whenever he wants to come. Why? Because he's the one throwing the party. If you don't want to wait, you go home and you miss the party. What guest would have the audacity to demand that a party start before the bride and groom arrive. 
we know that our wedding receptions here in the Philippines are notorious for starting late. If the reception time on the invitation says 6 p.m., for sure it will start two hours later at 8 or 8.30. I've been to weddings all across this country. It's about a two-hour delay here in Metro Manila. In the province, it's a little bit better. It's about an hour delay. In America, it starts on time. Our wedding reception in the U.S. was done at 8.30 p.m. That's when most receptions actually start here. I used to naively think that it would start early in my pastorate on time. And so I would come on time, even earlier, 5.30, if the wedding invitation said 6. It took a few weddings to quickly learn my lesson. Now let's just say, because I know you've been in this situation, that somehow you believe When the wedding coordinator called you and when the couple called you and said, this wedding reception will start on time, that you actually believed it would start on time. And let's say you actually think that for the first time it will start as it's stated in the invitation, you get there early. And you've been looking at your watch for the past two hours, getting angrier and angrier that it hasn't started yet. Have any of you ever, in that wedding reception, demanded that the reception staff serve your table first because everyone on your table is hungry. Maybe some of you should try that at the next wedding reception you go to. But I venture a guess you won't do that. We've all complained about the delay. No one's ever done anything about it. And even if you were to ask them to serve you first, The servers wouldn't even listen to you. Why? Because you're not paying for that meal. And as the guest, you don't have a right, however angry you are, to demand that the party start on the time indicated in the invitation. You will have to wait for the bride and the groom to come. And if you don't want to wait, you can leave. That's an understanding of why the virgins would wait. They could not demand to go ahead into the banquet hosted by the groom because he hadn't come yet and so the house door wasn't open and so they just fell asleep. You think our wedding receptions start late at 8.30, sometimes 9. In this story, the groom arrives at 12 midnight. Let me ask you this. If you ever get to a wedding reception that starts at 6 p.m., How many of you would wait until midnight for the reception to start? I don't think any of us would wait that long. We'd grumble a lot. We certainly wouldn't wait till midnight. The only reason we would wait until midnight is if it was the most amazing banquet in the world. We're talking unlimited steak. You know, we're talking unlimited giant scallops. And whatever other else that will make this the wedding banquet of the century, then maybe you may be encouraged to stay until 12 midnight. I believe these 10 virgins stayed until midnight because for them, they knew that this groom would throw the most amazing banquet. That's the only reason anyone would want to stay until midnight for a wedding reception. 
And that should remind us that when Jesus tells us to wait for him, that what he has in store for us in heaven is an amazing feast of the finest of foods, Isaiah tells us. It will be an experience that you will wait for. Recently, I heard from a friend that went to Walt Disney World that uh, there is a ride, a new ride called the Avatar Ride in Animal Kingdom. The average wait for this new ride is four hours. Would any of you in your right mind wait four hours, half a day, for one theme park ride? Apparently, it's an amazing experience that tens of thousands of people every day wait four hours to ride this ride. It is the same concept. There are things that are worth waiting for. The wedding supper of the Lamb that Jesus has promised us is one of those. And so we wait for him. And in this story, these ten virgins wait for the coming of the groom. Well, it's midnight and the groom has arrived and there's a bit of a commotion and shouting. And so they wake up in the announcement and they begin to trim their lamps, meaning they prepare their lamps to burn more properly now that the groom has come. But now we have a problem. Here's the problem. Look at verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Apparently while they were sleeping, the lamps kept on burning. And by the time it was midnight, the oils in the lamps were almost gone. So the five foolish women said to the five wise women, give us some of your oil because we're running out. We weren't prepared. I mean, to stop you here without knowing or reading on what happens. Let me ask you something. Are the five who brought the extra oil under any obligation to share with those who do not. If you were one of those five with the extra oil, how many of you would share with someone who asked from you some extra oil? Show of hands. Not very many. You are a mean group. You're not very generous. It's just a little bit of oil. Share with me some oil. They are under no obligation the answer is no. Listen carefully. Here's a general principle. Not one of our three, but a general principle. The ones who prepare are not responsible for the ones who do not. The ones who prepare are not responsible for the ones who do not prepare. Now let me kind of add to this story and mix it up. And let's say instead of ten virgins, these ten women were ten women that have known each other since kindergarten. They are the bestest of friends. They are a barcada. If five of your friends ask the other five to borrow some oil, are you obliged to help them? Some of you may be thinking, well, perhaps. Because if I don't give them some of this oil, they won't be my friend anymore. But the answer is still no, because the ones who prepare are not responsible for the ones who do not prepare. But let's say instead of friends, these ten were sisters. Our five sisters 
who prepare, obliged to share with the other five sisters, their family. Some of you may be wavering in your answer, thinking, well, they are sisters. Family share. But the answer is still no. Because the ones who prepare are not responsible for the ones who do not. How about this? Let's say you are the mother, and instead of ten virgins, it's one mother and nine adult daughters. Are you as a mom obliged to share with five of your adult daughters who didn't prepare? I know the heart of mothers. They probably would. But the answer in that case is still no. Because the ones who prepare are not responsible for the ones who do not. Now you may say, well, pastor, that seems heartless. How, how cruel. Didn't the Bible say be kind to one another? Now before you start to condemn, how many of you would share your hard-earned money with your siblings who don't work but watch movies all day? I bet you won't. How many of you will help out a friend who's struggling in life if you found out that none of them were making the effort to look for a job because he was playing video games all day? I bet you wouldn't help them. At the end of the day, each one is responsible for their own actions and then to reap the consequences of their actions. Therefore, the responsibility of those who do not wisely prepare is their own problem and others my friends are not obliged or obligated to help if you yourself are not foolish to help plan in advance now what if they asked really really nicely what if they pleaded what if they showered you with flowery words about how great you are and how how they helped you when you were in time of need and now they have some need if they ask nicely, are you obliged to help? The answer is still no. I remember a few years ago, my kids were fighting. I heard the commotion. And I went to their room to see what was happening. Apparently, one of the younger siblings needed something from the older brother. And the older sibling, the older brother, didn't want to lend to his younger sibling. So I asked them, what happened? Apparently, the younger sibling hit the older brother and so the fight started when i asked why did you hit your older brother the younger sibling told me because i asked nicely and he still wouldn't give it to me you see you and i cannot demand something that is not ours even if you ask nicely the reason I mention this is because in the millennial generation, that means young and old, those who are living in this 21st century, in our millennial generation, we are so entitled that we think that if we ask nicely, just by asking nicely, we are obliged to receive it, right? You've had that experience when your kids come and they, they beg, please, please, please. Oh, you're the best mom, and you're the best dad. And then you still tell them no? Those kids storm off angrily. I was nice to you. I used nice words. 
as if the the niceties of your words oblige someone to give you something that you have not earned or prepared for. Here's the first principle, number one, if you're taking notes. Prepare in advance for times of need as others are not obliged to help you. Prepare in advance for times of need as others are not obligated to help you. And you can even put in parentheses after this principle, life lesson, even if you ask nicely. And that's why it's an important life lesson to learn to prepare. That means you and I better have some life skills. I was thinking about this week, about the importance of home economics. There's a raging debate in education today to really bring back home ec. Because while you can know a lot about English and history and algebra and science, it can't really help you survive in the real world. And so I kind of listed 10 life skills that I want my kids all to know. And I share them with you. First life skill you should know, you should know how to cook. Not just operate the microwave. Because there may come to a time when your mom isn't around to cook for you. When your family can no longer afford to cook. Learn how to cook. Secondly, you need to learn how to swim. It's always funny to me how living in a country with 7,000 islands, the vast majority of Asians, the Chinese, do not know how to swim. Learn to swim because doing really fast computations, math-wise in your head, will not keep you from drowning. Thirdly, learn to change a tire or learn how to put air in it because knowing the physics of how a car moves won't actually Move your car with a flat tire. Fourthly, learn how to sew, especially how to sew a button. Because you would go broke if you had to throw away every shirt that lost a button. Fifthly, learn how to read a map. There will be days when there is no internet and Waze and Google Maps do not work. Sixthly, use a computer. Learn how to use a computer. This is for the older folks because this is where the future is going. Seventh, learn how to light a fire. There will be times when there simply is no electricity. Eighth, learn how to drive a manual stick shift car. The vast majority of vehicles in this world are still manual transmission. Ninth, learn how to perform CPR or the Heimlich maneuver. You never know when that's going to come in need for you and others. And of course, tenth, I believe you should know how to manage your finances. But as I write these 10 life skills that I believe everyone should know, at least I want my children to know, I think there's still even more important preparations that need to be done. And that is to prepare for our eternal destiny. You see, all the knowledge that you may know and all of the life skills that you and I may have will not save you from hell if you and I don't plan for it spiritually. The truest test of being prepared and therefore being wise is to be prepared for the unexpected, to be prepared for times of uncertainty. No one knows the time of their death. 
No one knows when they will get a terminal sickness. But a wise person remembers to ensure that they have prepared for their eternal destiny years in advance. Not when they suddenly fall into a coma and are incapacitated in a hospital. Because there will come to a time, listen carefully my friends, when our eternal destiny comes and there you will try to ask God for help. And there is one time in your life when God cannot and will not help you. And that is when you have made a choice to reject him and you are in hell. He is not obligated to help you even if you ask nicely. I believe that when this life is over, that there will be many in hell who plead with God to rescue them from the fiery pits of hell. And they will even say, but Lord, I lived such a good life. I was an honorable person. I lived a morally good life. And God said, I'm so sorry. I'm under no obligation and, and will not help you. Because you had the chance to accept or reject, and you rejected me. And you did not grab that opportunity to prepare for your eternal destiny. That's the one time where God, in his infinite, unconditional love, will not respond to your call for help. And he has warned us today to prepare for that eventuality. And just like we are not obliged and obligated to help others who do not prepare, neither is God when it comes to our eternal destinies. Second principle, look at verse 9. But the wise virgins answered saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. The five wise virgins give the reason why they cannot share the oil is because they've only brought enough for themselves. And if they were to share with the five who were not prepared, the foolish ones, then they would not have enough oil to light the entire reception. And so they said, go get some oil from those who are selling. It is not because they are uncaring. It is because they have only prepared enough for themselves. You see, number two, if you're taking notes, Preparedness is an individual responsibility. Preparedness is an individual responsibility. You have to do it yourselves. If there is a category four and five typhoon that is bearing down on Metro Manila, you begin to prepare days in advance by stocking up on batteries, stocking up on food, drinkable water, knowing that there could be days without potable water. You charge all of your cell phones, you make sure that your power banks are charged. You ensure that you have flashlight and candles. Why? Why do you do all those things? Because you cannot guarantee that your neighbor will come and help you. You don't know if no one else is going to do it for you. Now the government may warn, and they will warn you with TV warnings and radio warnings. They'll send you texts that are about five hours late, but that's fine. They'll send you all the warnings, but they're actually not going to come to your house and personally prepare for you. Why? Because the government's expectation is that preparedness is still at its core 
an individual responsibility. You got to do it for yourself. And this principle needs to work its way into how we parent and in the family life. You see, in some families, parents will take on the responsibility of caring for themselves. But then somehow they have this notion that they also have to be responsible for the entire life of their children and their grandchildren. Sometimes we've got to understand that we cannot baby our adult children. At some point in their lives, they must take responsibility for their own life and to prepare for living. Do you really expect that you can still keep going to your parents, asking them for money when you're 55 years old? And yet, that is what happens in our culture. And parents, I know that some of you may be tempted to try to do everything for your child and your grandchildren. But as I've mentioned in the past, this is actually not very healthy. Because you're not teaching them to be responsible for themselves. And if they are not responsible for themselves, then they will never take responsibility for their eternal destiny. A lot of parents get burnt out working well past retirement years to provide for their children who are grown up. They don't need to do that. Parents, you ever notice that in the Bible, your only responsibility is to train up your children in the things of the Lord. Of course, to provide for them while they're young, but to model in discipleship a Christ-like life. And that ends there. The Bible is silent about how you are to continue caring for them. The scriptures then talk about how adult children have a responsibility to honor and care for the elderly. But that's it. Because I believe the Bible is teaching that at some point in a person's life, they must take on individual responsibility to begin to prepare for their own lives. And so parents, it is not your responsibility to wake up your adult children so that they will not be late for work. You can wake them up so that they won't be late for school, but really, for work? And yet, a lot of parents do that. Parents, it is not your responsibility to provide for your lazy children. The reason they're lazy is because you have enabled this lifestyle for them. Parents, it is not your responsibility to protect your adult children if they're going to live a destructive life. Because by helping them, you are only enabling them to continue down this road. Sometimes... Letting them live with the consequences of their action, which sometimes means going to jail, is really the best for them. But then you may argue with me, but pastor, you don't have adult kids yet. A parent's love for their children never goes away. I agree with you. But these are not my words. These are the words of Scripture. 
when you take on the responsibility that should be someone else's, then they never learn about responsibility. You cannot accept Christ on your children's behalf as much as you want to. Teaching them individual personal responsibility prepares them for their eternal destiny by waking them up to the reality that they too must own their own faith and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why it may surprise you as a pastor. If your adult children don't want to go to church, I would tell you, don't force them. Encourage them. Challenge them. But don't force them. Because you know how it is. The more you nag, the more you force, the more they won't come. Just remind them of the truths of the scripture. That their actions is between them and God. And if they don't want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's on them. Now I know your heart may go out to your children. Pray for them. Show them love. But they need to understand that you are teaching them to prepare for their eternal destiny by giving the responsibility of their spiritual life back to them. Just like you can't save yourself and them, you need to understand they must own up to it. For those of you who are younger, understand that your parents cannot always protect you. Just because you came from a Christian home or you came from a Christian school doesn't mean you're under the protection somehow of God. If you want to live a holy life, if you want to live and have purity before marriage, then it is your own responsibility to set up the guardrails to ensure that you do not fall into temptation. If you do not want to be embarrassed when you are challenged in your faith, then you have a responsibility to know more about your faith and what the scriptures have. And if you are embarrassed, that's no one's fault but yours. You see, in our generation, in this millennial generation, young and old, it is a coddled generation that it feels so entitled that it's never their fault. And so if it's never my fault, i got to blame someone. But my friends, individual responsibility means that you cannot blame someone else. Nowhere in this parable do we read that the foolish virgins blame the wise virgins. You didn't tell me to bring the extra oil. You didn't bring enough for both of us. You aren't sharing. Those are the responses we would give if we were in that situation. You're so unkind. You don't reflect Jesus. Oh, we're good at blaming. And we're good at blaming using spiritual things. Well, you parents of mine, you didn't exhibit a Christ-like life. You weren't perfect, and that's why I'm not perfect today. My friends, the blame game needs to end because personal responsibility means you need to own up to certain things. 
Don't blame the religion of your relatives for why you don't walk the Christian walk. I know it's very difficult if you grew up in a Buddhist family. I can't even imagine how difficult it must be for you to take a stand. But at some point, you need to take a stand. There are men and women around the world who, because they take a stand for Jesus Christ, are excommunicated from their families. There are men and women across the world who, because they take a stand for Jesus Christ and make a personal choice to believe him as their personal savior, are cut off from their family fortune and must live in destitute because of their decision for Jesus. Don't tell me about the sacrifices that you need to make in this very comfortable nation in which we live. Don't blame God for a lack of time for why you can't sacrifice some of the time you spend on silly things to live for Jesus. But we're so good at playing the blame game. And we do so because we don't take ownership of what is ours. Learning to be prepared for our own individual needs is a good discipline so that we will prepare ourselves spiritually for when Jesus comes. Because listen carefully, when the eternal reckoning day comes and you are in hell, there is no one else to blame. And if you're a Christian and you don't get as much heavenly rewards as the other person going to heaven, you don't have anyone to blame. It is your own decision for how you've lived your life. Christians, all of us, need to be more prepared than we are now, knowing that Christ can come at any time. It's an individual responsibility. No more to the blame game of our millennial generation take up the responsibility of being prepared for Jesus' coming. Verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And note this. The door was shut. While the foolish virgins who didn't prepare the extra oil containers went to the store to go find some more oil, the groom came. And brought all those who were ready into his house for an amazing wedding banquet. And the door was shut. I'd like you to circle or highlight this phrase in verse 10. Those who were ready. They were the ones who were let in. And the door was shut. This is a very vivid picture of our third life lesson. Number three about preparedness. Number three. Preparedness brings reward to the ready. Preparedness brings reward to the ready. When you are prepared, you get rewarded. It's as simple as that. If you are not prepared, then you will not be rewarded. We would say, well, that's very fair. But I've got to stress this point. Because we've forgotten this principle in our very forgiving culture today. Gone are the days when we actually said something and kept our word. Let me give you an example. How many of you have this situation play out in your homes? Mommy tells the kids, kids get ready. 
We're leaving at 5 p.m. When daddy gets home, we're going to have a family dinner celebration. If you are not ready at 5 p.m. when daddy comes back, we're going to leave without you. How many of you made that threat? So it's 5 p.m. Daddy, that's me. This is a true story. I come back. All right, kids, it's time to go. It's 5 p.m. Daddy, I can't find my shoes. Can you wait a few minutes? I need to find my shoes and put it on. The other says, Daddy, wait. I have to use the bathroom. And then the other says, Daddy, wait. My iPad isn't fully charged yet. That's something only you hear in the 21st century. Now, how many of you would actually say, I'm sorry, kids. We said five. We're leaving. No, I know most of you, and I certainly don't. I say, all right, let's wait. Go find your shoes. And they go tramping off finding their shoes. The other goes to the bathroom, and invariably, when one goes to the bathroom, the others all go to the bathroom also. And since all go to the bathroom, I figure I should go to the bathroom too. And then the other, we wait until... He's satisfied that his device has charged to the point that will last him all night. And by now, it's about 6 p.m. And the mood has definitely changed because now we're not on time. And we finally leave because we want it to be a happy occasion with all the kids there. Because of the kindness of this generation, we've, we've been lulled into thinking... Well, we have time to prepare. Imagine what your friends would say. What? You left your kids? Could you not have given them a few minutes to look for their shoes or use the bathroom or charge their device? You know, the answer should be, they should have done it before five. But we're all the same way. When the time has come, then we have time to prepare. When it comes to spiritual things, you better learn this lesson now. Because in the spiritual realm and in how God operates, He operates like an airline. When the airplane door closes and flies on time, that's not the time when you run to the gate and try to jump on. It leaves and if you're not prepared, you get left behind. The prepared wise virgin were able to enjoy the party. The others who were not prepared were not. Reward for the ready. And those who are not ready, look at this simple detail that Jesus puts in this story. The door was shut. He draws a very clear delineating line. Those who are prepared get rewarded. Those who do not will not be rewarded. God has showed us how he operates. When he comes back, he doesn't say, okay, I'll give you five minutes, scramble so you can all ask for forgiveness and begin to live for me. No. When he comes, that's it. Those who are prepared get rewarded. Those who do not are not rewarded. Well, look at these five foolish virgins who finally get the extra oil. Look what they do. Look at verse 11 and 12. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. 
But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. They tried to get into the party, but the door was already closed. They were denied admission because they were not ready. And of course, they make a commotion outside. They called the groom's name. Hey, let us in, let us in. And the groom comes out. He is the Lord of the house. Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answers to them, I do not know you. Loosely translated, who are you? Why should I open the door again? You're not my family. You're not a VIP in the spiritual realm. Who are you that I should open this door for you? I do not know you. And they were not let in. When the time of our eternal reckoning comes, there may be those who plead with the Lord, 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 open to us, let us in. Jesus will look at you and say, who are you? And I'm sure you'll answer, I was a really good person. I gave a lot of money to philanthropic causes. I was not a murderer. I occasionally lied, but I was generally a good person. I got a citizen of the year award, Lord. I deserve to go into the great party you're throwing. The response is, I do not know you. You see, you may not like it, but when it comes to eternal things, there are no second chances. In this present life, we get second chances over and over by the grace of God and through the shed blood of Jesus. But in our eternal destinies, there is no second chance. We say, well, Lord, that's not very gracious of you. Let me ask you this. If the warning light came on yellow to signal the coming of the red light, and you didn't heed the yellow light, and you blew through the intersection when it turned red, and you broadsided another car, and you killed someone, you can't make things go away and say, oh, Lord, give me a second chance to stop at the stoplight. Does that make sense? There are things in life where there are no second chances, where the consequences are such that you must live with your decision. And the eternal destiny of where you want to place your life is one of them. You can plead all you want. That door isn't opening. That's why there is a yellow light before the red. That's why Jesus says in verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The warning has already been given. The challenge to be watchful, to prepare, for no one knows the time of the coming of our Lord 
except God himself. Because when he comes, for those that don't know Jesus Christ, it will be hell for them. But you still have chance today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, if you don't believe that he died in your place, trusted him today, you can't save yourself. And if you're struggling with your faith still, come and talk to the pastors and the elders and the deacons of this church. We would love to journey with you as you struggle with this most important of issues, the reckoning of your eternal destiny. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, but you are not today living for him, it will be your loss of rewards eternal when he comes back. It's not a threat from me. It's just a warning from the scriptures. Will you be wise or will you be foolish? It's up to you. Are you prepared? Let's pray. Father, the question is often asked, am I prepared to meet my Savior? For many of us, our mouth says yes, our lives say no. Challenge your people through your word to be prepared, to know the scriptural principles that you are under no obligation to help us when we have not ourselves taken on the responsibility for planning for our lives. For those that think they still have more time, wake them up this morning. You can come at any time. Our lives can be taken at any time. For those who are still struggling with taking a stand for you, I pray that they would learn the life principle that at the end of the day when we meet you, we are, are not to blame anyone else. We simply have to answer for our own lives. Challenge this church to see that it is a church that's living in anticipation for the coming of Jesus. And that when you come, each of us will stand proudly before you, joy in our hearts, excited to tell you what we've done for you. In Jesus' name we pray.